0: The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime, one and all, and welcome to Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland. Today, we're broadcasting from Kingston, Ontario, which, as it turns out, is only one mile from the sun right now, or almost a kilometer, if you will. It is so hot. How hot is it? <laughs> there is a weather warning along the shores of Lake Ontario because of the humidity. And, of course, anytime you get humidity in close proximity to a lake, Uh, which is always the case, you are going to end up with a thunderstorm. And as I was driving along the shores of Lake Ontario tonight, edging my way towards the studio, I saw the spike lightning. So we are in for it. The storm is on its way, folks. You know, it's a good night to settle in safe and sound for tonight's show and get ready to have the bejesus scared out of you. But first, get the coffee going, get the tea going. Get a beverage of your choice. Go and settle in your comfy chair. Kick back your feet and relax. Now, the beast we're going to be discussing tonight has been described as a devilish-like creature in large black eyes that seems to pierce the dark. There's spikes along its back and its mouth is bursting with razor-sharp fangs. Now, this beast has been blamed for mass hysteria in 1995 Puerto Rico over a new menace lurking in the rainforest, gruesomely killing livestock, leaving strange holes in their necks and draining their bodies of blood. One would think right away of a vampire. Indeed, one was better off avoiding being alone in the forests and paths in the fields, especially at night. Now, this beast has been known by those who know it as the Chupra Cabra. The word, of course, is Spanish for the goat sucker. Tonight, folks, we are going to be joined by noted monster hunter Nick Redfern. Many of you know Nick. Uh, He's been on the show many times before. Um, Usually, he's here to talk about UFOs. This time, Nick has embarked with a team, and gone into the rugged back country of Puerto Rico. This is where we're going to go tonight, folks. Puerto Rico he's gone to, Mexico, and deep into the heart of Texas to investigate the continuing legacy of this fearsome beast. He has interviewed local, analyzed physical evidence, and sorted out the facts from legends. Nick's journey into the realm of the chupacabra will make you wonder just what's out there sucking blood in the night. Nick Redford is the author of more than 30 books. Okay, we're going to dive into it right away. I should tell you the name of the book, folks. Chupacabra Road Trip in Search of the Elusive Beast. And of course, our guest tonight and its author, Nick Redford.
1: Hey, Brett. How's it going?
0: It goes well, my friend. Let's jump in right away. Now, when I saw you were doing a book on the chupacabra, I wanted to ask you this because you're one of the leading researchers for UFOs. Now, is this beast an extraterrestrial beast? Is it indigenous Um, to this planet, or somewhere in between, my friend?
1: Well, I I don't personally think it's extraterrestrial, but that doesn't take away the fact that a lot of people on Puerto Rico do think it's extraterrestrial. I mean, Mm. my my two main areas of research and writing are the UFOs, Phenomenon and cryptozoology, which you know falls into the category, or the, the tripod falls into the category of uh, cryptozoologists. And there are, admittedly, some cases where you do get crossovers. Like, for example, you know the Mothman, which some people view as a, a, a cryptid, as they're known. But when the Mothman sightings were at their height in Point Pleasant in the sixties, there were a lot of associated UFO encounters and many black reports. So, in other words, it's not Always that clear-cut that we do sometimes have crossover-type cases. And I think that happens certainly with the Chupacabra reports, that you get people who take one approach, other people take another approach. And sometimes, you know, the the lines are blurred between the two.
0: What are the aspects of this creature that sets it aside from, say, a wolf, a coyote, a coyote, or something, some other predator, something like that, that would be attacking cats.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it's interesting because you, the, when you look at the chupacabra phenomenon, it's not just one thing. You know, the the original Puerto Rican chupacabra, and that surfaced in the 1990s, it was very different to what people call the chupacabra rather here, which it looks like a you know a hairless dog-like animal. The um, The original reports out of Puerto Rico in the 1990s were of creatures that walked on two limbs that had like a vicious looking row of spikes running down their head and neck, uh, claws, fangs, and sometimes back-like wings. So they're very strange looking creatures, almost gargoyle-like. So if the reports are genuine, and I've interviewed a lot of people who come across extremely credible and who describe the Chupacabra just like that, um, we 're clearly not dealing with any known animal, um, and a lot of people don 't realize that despite its sort of you know jungle like environment and you know this huge rainforest young rainforest, there actually aren 't any large indigenous wild animals on Puerto Rico at all, and um, they 're all important like pigs, goats cattle, et cetera, um, you know, there's nothing, as some people assume, uh, like, um, you know, big cats or anything like that roaming around at all, nothing. So, uh, um, in other words, there shouldn't be anything on Puerto Rico attacking animals in the fashion that, you know, we're told they attack.
0: Now, I'm just wondering, you know, going back to the Cold War and nuclear testing that was in the area, do you think there's any chance that... One of these animals might be a bastardization due to radiation or something along those lines? Well,
1: kind of along that path. I mean, I've, I've been on uh, a lot of expeditions to Puerto Rico now. The, 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 basically, the book is like a 10 year diary type study of the, since the first time I went to Puerto Rico in 2014 to my most recent trip, um, which is actually the subject of a new uh, episode of the Travel Channels show uh, Mysteries at the National Parks. That sort of brings it right up to date. And every time I've been to Puerto Rico, I've heard stories about could the Chupacabra be some sort of mutated creature or genetically altered creature. And I've heard these stories. There is about futuristic Frankenstein-type labs deep underground in Puerto Rico where bizarre gene splicing is going on and sort of radical research into genetics and, you know, splicing different animals to try and create... The general theory I've heard every pretty much every time is to try and to create, like, the ultimate killing machines that could be released on battlefields. You know, imagine if you had two or three hundred vicious killing machines like the Chupacabra, you could just unleash them on the enemy. <laughs> you know, it, it sounds like sci-fi. And maybe it is, but the theories certainly abound on Puerto Rico. I, in fact, I don't think... There's been a single time I've been to Puerto Rico across 10 years when I haven't heard at least a couple of stories from people who've said, well, you know, they're doing all this sort of weird experimentation on monkeys and chimpanzees and trying to create something monstrous out of them and that, you know, some of them have escaped from the labs and what people are perceiving is the chupacabra is the the result of bizarre experimentation.
0: Yeah, it sounds like the island of Dr. Moreau.
1: So, you know. It's kind of a bit yeah. like cross that, crossing that with something like uh, The Walking Dead and 28 Days Later sort of creating viral cocktails that will create sort of a state of rage in these animals. A lot of quite disturbing research has been done into things like gene splicing and, you know, trying to understand the extent to which literally animals can be crossed. You know, that, that's what By there's legislation in place now, you know, to what extent it's always upheld, I'm not sure, but there is legislation in place to ensure that, you know, for example, human embryos can only be experimented on for, you know, a period of a few days. Um, There was a big outcry in the UK a few years ago when it was shown that um, scientists were actually using human embryos and essentially adding animal um, embryonic material to the human embryos. And again, you know, the assurances were in place that, well, they'll all be destroyed after seven, ten days. We just want to, you know, see if it can help with, you know, medical issues and things like that. But who knows? You know, there may be some crazy guy who decides to take the experiments further. And I think it's legitimate things we can prove like this that have led to these rumours of a Chupacabra being the result of some sort of genetic experiment.
0: You know, I was going to ask you, because when I was reading your bio and the preamble to the to the show, it had mentioned that you had gone and spoke with locals. Were any of those locals, yeah. you don't have to give any names for anonymity's sake, but were any of those locals from the military, for example, or perhaps from law enforcement or <laughs> rangers from the parks?
1: Um. A few of them actually were from retired law enforcement. A very notable and memorable encounter in 2005 was a Puerto Rican guy who was retired from the uh, Puerto Rican Civil Defense Department. And um, he actually told me on the camera, on camera, you know, he he had no bones about speaking publicly. He spoke on the camera about... um, when he was in in the Civil Defence Department, he actually worked on a project to um, go out and investigate the Pekava attacks. This is, say, for example, on on farms where, you know, farmers' animals are being attacked and killed. We're talking sort of pigs, chickens, goats, things like that. And it was his job to sort of photograph the areas. interview the farmers things like this and and part of it was for insurance purposes but part of it was also to try and get a picture of what was going on and when he left he actually took with him a gigantic batch of material and he he allowed that to be filmed for the camera and he opened up these files which contained autopsy reports witness statements um collar photographs of animals that had been injured or killed um, drawings by the farmers and the eyewitnesses who'd seen these creatures, and it was like looking at a real life X file. Which, in many respects, because of his position, he actually was. So, you know, that was sort of a really memorable type of experience.
0: Did he tell you what he thought it was,
1: or could be? Well, he he didn't tell us what he thought it was but because he said he you know he was someone who sort of preferred to just work on the facts but what he did say he was absolutely sure what it wasn't and he said he was sure that the the really weird and unexplained attacks weren't the result of attacks by packs of wild dogs um, they weren't the work of you know the escaped big cats or anything like that he was sure from the um, the witness reports that the chupacabra was a genuine unknown creature, but he had no sort of firm opinion on whether that meant it was, you know, the result of an experiment, extraterrestrial, or, you know, some surviving relic from a past era or something else. He was, just, he was just basically saying, yeah, there's something, but I don't know what it is.
0: Folks, www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. You're going to want to get this book, aren't you? <laughs> this is a great book, folks. It's uh, pretty creepy, but realistic in its own right. Chupacabra Road Trip in Search of the Elusive Beast. And our guest tonight and its author, Nick Redfern. Now, as many of you know, Nick is in the our archives, Show. You will find his archives there. Also, just click on tonight's guest book covers because they are plethora. And that'll take you right to a spot where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. And, you know, people are still camping in groves and will be camping for several more months now. Can you think of a better book to take in the woods with you when you're camping? By the campfire, the kids are asleep. and want to give yourself a little bit of an education and a little bit of some uh, historical fact? I would recommend this book, Chupacabra Road Trip in Search of the Elusive Beast. I want to ask you, there's lots of documentation of this creature attacking cattle, uh, attacking wildlife in general, usually farm animals. Is there any references that you came across at all to either this Chupacabra hunting or stalking human beings or even attacking them? Well,
1: yeah, I mean, again, kind of like with the genetic experiments angle, there probably hasn't been a time when I've been to Puerto Rico when I haven't heard a few stories of human attacks, because every time I've been there over the last 10 years, you know, I've always tried to go for at least sort of a week, 10 days, to make sure, you know, I can do sort of a comprehensive trek all around the island and, um, you know, and, and do some good investigations, meet people and uh, knock back a few margaritas in the process as well. Um, But Yeah, one of the things I've heard (laughs) are these stories of attacks on people. Now, I would have to sort of qualify that by saying that while I've actually seen, you know, up close and personal, some of the animals attacked by the chupacabra and seen photographs and read reports and this kind of thing... I have to admit that all of the stories I've heard about the human attacks have been very much sort of of friend-of-a-friend type stories. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, there's not necessarily any truth to them. If there was any truth to them, if there is any truth to them, um, I think it would make sense that these stories would be the ones that would be most obviously clamped down on by the authorities for fear of hysteria breaking out. So it doesn't surprise me that, if, as I said, if the stories are true, that they've been so well hidden. Um, and that may explain why, you know, trying to find the evidence for the human attacks has been so difficult. I've heard rumours of killings and of people found in the El Yonke rainforest with, I guess, quite grizzly, like with eyeballs removed, the skin around the jaw removed, organs taken, and which looks like, you know, something wild as an attack. Them, but it's specifically gone after particular parts of the body. Um, but again, you know, proving that it is, even as, as I have to admit, you know, is something I haven't been able to do, which is you know different to the the animal side of things.
0: Nick, again, coming from your your great background as a UFO researcher, and I think right away, of course, of cattle mutilations. What would be the difference between the uh, injuries? between what a chupacabra has got a hold of and uh, something that we presume is by extraterrestrials when we talk about cattle mutilations?
1: Well, yeah, that's actually a good question because, you know, when you talk about the chupacabra sort of mutilating and killing animals, there is often this tendency to place it in sort of a cattle mutilation aspect as well. But when we look into it, we find it's actually quite different. For example... You know, cattle mutilations, whoever or whatever's doing them, seem to be quite precise, more sort of scientifically carried out medically, you know, with specific organs removed, eyeballs, the tongue. Sometimes hear reports of tripod landing marks and strange lights in the sky in and around cattle mutilation sites. That's very much different to the Chupacabra, where we hear reports of, for example, um pigs, uh, goats, chickens with puncture wounds in the neck. Um, now, that's highly suggestive of wild animals. Now, problematic, of course, is the fact that a lot of animals kill you know, by uh, puncturing the neck uh, or grabbing the neck you know, to bring the prey down. It's like with lions. People think you know, if you get attacked by a lion, it's going to tear the animal or the person apart. It actually doesn't. You know, the lions go for the throat and, and suffocate the prey and then carry it back. Um, And that's what we often get with the chupacabra reports, is puncture wounds. We don't see, like, for example, you know, certain organs removed, uh, or the eyeballs removed, or the lips and things like this that we get in cattle mutilations. It sounds very much more like an animal that's feeding. Now, in terms of that feeding, I've heard a number of stories, not often, but enough to know that the story's in circulation on Puerto Rico, that some people have said um, that the, as well as the puncture wounds on the neck, they've seen a punk, one puncture wound in the stomach area, um, suggesting that maybe one particular organ was also removed, uh, whether one sort of rich in nutrients and that kind of thing that an animal might go for, that, you know, that's not impossible. Um, but in terms of a direct connection between cattle mutilations and chupacabra attacks, I, I don't think there's one there. Um, the big, the other big difference is that very often cattle mutilations, although the organs are gone, they're not missing significant amounts of blood. Now, there are a lot of rumors, and granted they are rumors, about um, chupacabra attacks in which the victims have supposedly been drained of significant amounts of blood. Now, these stories are fascinating, but again, they're hard to actually pinpoint because um, when an animal dies, you know, if it's left uh, outside and it remains untouched for, you know, however long gravity takes effect and the blood can actually sort of well gravitate to the lower portions of the body so you know if a couple of days later you cut into it not only obviously the blood not pumping out because the heart stopped but it's not necessarily present in the way it should be in the opening area because it's you know and some people say well that's because it's sunk to the lower extremities other people take the view that large amounts of blood have gone. The problem is that, you know, very often the lack of funding and also the lack of the ability of the farmers in some of the isolated little towns and villages to actually have someone study these, the bodies. You know, it might cost the farmer a lot of money to actually find out if the blood's gone or not. And unfortunately, there are a lot of, you know, poor areas on Puerto Rico and people are just looking to, to live, you know, not necessarily... To, to solve the mystery of, of the, of the Chupacabra, isn't
0: it? I was going to ask you, actually, if there was some attacks in Texas as well, if you could tell one mm-hmm. of those stories. But in addition to that, I yeah, just sure. thought, you know, um, perhaps there when there's an attack that occurs, perhaps some DNA might be left behind, either a fur may have fallen out, mm-hmm. if there is any fur. Well, yeah,
1: it's interesting so. you should bring that up. Yeah, it's interesting you should bring that up because the fur first time I went to Puerto Rico in 2004 is with a, um, a crew from the Sci-Fi Channel. We made a show called Proof Positive. And it was kind of like the X-Files meets CSI where they wanted to do investigations but also they wanted something that could be analysed, some sort of forensic data. And so what they did was to get their hands on uh, a number of chicken feathers from a chicken that had supposedly been attacked by a chupacabra and the feathers were handed over to a forensics lab that checks for DNA, and the problem was that the rancher had kept the feathers for years, and by the time the forensic analysis was done, the the DNA, even if there was any, had degraded to the point where it just, you know, it wasn't uh, of any use. But I mean, that would be the one way to possibly solve the riddle: would be to get some definitive DNA. But again, the problem is that. What a lot of people often forget is that, you know, somebody like me, I couldn't get a DNA analysis done because to go to a DNA lab and have all these tests carried out, it's an incredibly expensive thing to have to do. Um, You know, most people aren't in a position to literally spend thousands, you know, just to say, hey, does this feather contain Chupacabra DNA? You know, it's, uh, it's beyond most people, you know
0: no I agree and there's are protocols that have to be taken when you take the sample as well yes yeah. it's, it's you know it's not just a matter of just taking the swab and putting it in your napsty no, and are right back to the airplane so I understand that completely Texas No,
1: you know, yeah that's actually the worst thing you can do because it becomes potentially contaminated by possible other you know DNA as well
0: exactly and I was going to ask you why Texas is on the map it seems mm. uh, hmm like a big question mark to me.
1: Well, what? How? yeah, I mean, this is where some people get confused. It's actually uh, something that's easy to explain. When you understand it, it, it becomes simple. But what happened was that in 2004, people began reporting sightings of strange creatures in Texas, particularly sort of the San Antonio, Austin area, and the large wooded areas in and around those places as well. And um, it became came known as the Chupacabra. Now, what people were describing, if you look at the original photograph at first surface, people were saying it looked like a giant, hairless, rat-like animal. Um, and because the animals, the farm animals that were being attacked suddenly out of the blue were like chickens, goats, and occasionally pigs. And because that was very similar to the attacks that were going on in Puerto Rico, the media started saying, oh, well, the, the chupacabras come to Texas and to the United States. You know, the, the rest of the United States to a lesser degree, but certainly to a large degree in te- Texas. And so the term Chupacabra was suddenly applied to all these ratty-looking animals in Texas. Now, when a number of these animals were finally shot and killed or got hit by vehicles, which is unlike the Puerto Rican ones, you know, we don't have a corpse, they're actually... Literally dozens of these Texas ones, you know, in people's hands. Um, I actually own the skull of one of uh, these creatures, a friend of mine, Ken Gerhard. Really? He had the uh, remains of one actually stored in his freezer for <laughs> for a long time. Oh, That's okay. That's um, other people so nice. have got them sort of, um, you know, given them to taxidermists and got them stuffed and mounted. And in these cases, we do have the DNA of the animals. And it shows them to be canid, you know, in some cases coyotes, others uh, coyote dog and coyote wolf mixtures. But the debunkers and the sceptics have said, oh, well, these are just um, coyotes with mange. They're actually not. There's something very weirder going on, much weirder going on than that. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Mange is a condition caused by a mite which causes an animal to lose hair, but generally it loses hair in like at random, so you have tufts of hair all over the body um, and it also causes intense scratching and itching probably the closest analogy you know, for people is if you get chicken pox as a kid, you know, you just want to keep scratching yourself all day but that's what it's like for animals with mange so they lose partial hair they scratch and itch to the point where they often Bleed because they're you know they're so intensely cutting into the skin, and then infection sets in and they get sick and then they die or they look sickly unless they recover. These animals in Texas are pretty much 100% hairless. It's like as if they're developing hair with, in a hairless fashion. The pups don't have hair either, so we're seeing something different. Physical uh, changes are. Uh, present too. For example, the front limbs of these animals are shorter than they should be so they have this weird hopping-like motion. They're also developing what look like a, a pair of pouches on their hindquarters, and they have like a long overbite, about an inch. The top jaw is about an inch longer often than it should be. And this has given rise to the idea that something is spontaneously mutating certain factions of the wild Canid creatures in Texas, like coyotes, and one of the things that's been put forward is what are known as mutagens. Mutagens, like mercury, is one, can actually affect an animal's DNA level and cause all sorts of bizarre abnormalities, which might explain why these creatures have only surfaced in this form at least since 2004.
0: The book is called Chupacabra Road Trip: In Search of the Elusive Beast. The guest and uh, the author tonight is Nick Redford. You could get his books, and I say that plurally tonight, at www.nightfrightshow.com. www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book covers take you right to a spot where you can pick them up and uh, great time to get them folks you know if you're going to go away in the woods or if you're up at the cottage and you're looking for a great book to uh, cuddle in with at night when the kids are asleep or you know a quiet time none better than this one and uh, thoroughly thoroughly enjoying this uh, with Nick. Nick now you said you went deep into the woods in Puerto Rico with a team was there anything unnerving that happened to you and could you tell us a little um, bit about things that happen hmm. deep in the woods that perhaps you can't explain?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, for me, I, I don't sort of get unnerved. I mean, I, I, when I sort of get, you know, like, adrenalized, it, it sort of spurs me on more, you know, when when you, you might hear strange things or you're in an area where there have been dangerous things going on, it sort of pushes me on further rather than gets me sort of scared. But, I mean, I have heard a lot of weird and, you know, very ominous stories, um, you know, coming out of these areas. Uh, for example, uh, on one of the occasions when I went to Puerto Rico, I interviewed a woman named Norca, and she'd seen um, one of these creatures, the Chupacabra, actually way back in, 19, in the summer of 1975, this was 20 years before the Chupacabra was known by name, in 1995, and that's one of the interesting things, is that although the phenomenon really surfaced publicly in 1995, I've actually uncovered a number of random reports, sporadic reports, that push it back at least to the 1960s, but people just weren't talking about it as much then. Now, Norca told me about how there'd been some very disturbing attacks on animals um in the area at the time she saw this particular creature what was very bizarre she said in the particular region she lived in which was high in the el yonky rainforest she had this like huge house on stilts you know typical kind of one you see on hillsides uh in the el yonky rainforest and she told me about how she was aware of a number of animal killings where the animals were dead and all the bones had been removed from the bodies, which is like really weird. It was just like a, you know, like a lifeless piece of, like picking up a carpet or a rug, you know, there was just no bone left in the body at all. That's terrifying. Um, you know, that was very sort of... What's that.
0: what's That's terrifying, if I came across that Yeah,
1: that way. was like extremely weird and, you know, creepy to hear something like that. Um, other stories uh, sort of a, of a very weird nature as well, where several people told me that in relation to these attacks on people, the, the Chupacabra reportedly had the, has the ability to sort of render a person into almost like a hypnotic, trance-like state. Now, whether that's true or not, you know, is open to question. But again, it's something I've heard on a number of occasions. And it's been suggested that this creature can almost sort of entrance a person in the same way that, you know, a snake will entrance an animal and it'll just be frozen and then the the snake will attack. It was kind of described to me like that. So, you know, you do have hazards along those lines. And um, so it's like anywhere if you go into a wild environment, you've got to know how to look after yourself and, and sort of... Don't fall foul of uh, not just the weird creatures, but the uh, known ones as well. I mean, a lot of the things I've been on in Puerto Rico, one of the theories is that these animals um, live or at least hide out in some of Puerto Rico's extensive cave systems, many of which, but even by the Puerto Rican government's admission, have never, ever, I mean, literally ever been explored. They're sort of out of bounds. And some of the caves, I've actually explored them quite deeply, And you have to be a bit careful because Puerto Rico has a large bat population, and many of the bats have rabies, so you have to be extremely careful, um, you know, when you're sort of crawling through um, cave spaces and, you know, things like this that may not be particularly high, and, you know, you've got hundreds of bats looking down. (laughs) at you from the ceiling it can be uh you gotta be a little, little bit careful and cover yourself up <laughs> well
0: and um, bat poop is really toxic as well now i've got to ask you this then did you crawl through any of those tunnels
1: oh yeah i spent a lot of time in the caves and uh you know just, just i mean just really watching out that you don't sort of just don't look up at the bats too much because the last thing you want is a bat to sort of pee in your mouth or something like that oh, wow. and then it's uh You know, then it's injections in the stomach for like a month or whatever it is to make sure you don't sort of, you know, turn into the closest thing to some raging zombie or whatever. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I mean, joking aside, it's Mm -hmm. ironically, you know, the the worst things to deal with really are sort of the the regular wildlife. Like I said, the bats, uh, um, certain spiders, things like this. Um, But, you know, as long as you're careful and you you dress well, appropriately for the for the locations then it's all okay um you just have to sort of have your wits about yourself that's all
0: you know i'm going to draw some analogies to bigfoot and also linda godfrey was on the show and talking about dogs. oh cool uh oh she's wonderful and a good friend yeah she well. is um, and show folks, uh, you'll find her show in the archive and do get her, bu- her book as well. It's really well researched. And uh, just to let you know, Chupacabra, Road Trip in Search of the Elusive Beast. Nick Redfern is our guest tonight and its author. Click on tonight's guest book cover, www.nightfrightshow.com. Two questions. Is there a smell to the Chupacabra? And the other question is, what's the difference between what Linda has um, documented in terms of a dog man, and, and specifics uh, that might make this creature different than a dogman type of uh, a chupacabra different than a dogman type okay. of creature
1: yeah sure well you know um, personally I haven't come across anything that describes like a specific odour from the chupacabra but what I have heard is that ranchers have often been alerted to the presence of one of the creatures on Puerto Rico by their farm animals before the attacks have occurred. Now, of course, you know, all animals have far better senses of smell than we do. So it's not impossible, I think, that when, you know, as I've heard, you know, stories of chickens just, you know, screeching in their pens and the ranchers have luckily been able to get out there before the attacks occurred. You know, it's possible that the animals picked up on some sort of unusual sense, you know, that they they didn't recognize. Um, So I think that's a possibility, even though, you know, it doesn't surprise you that people didn't pick up on it because, you know, bad noses aren't that good when it comes to, to you know, comparing them with wild animals. Now, what you said about Linda's work is actually very interesting because, I, you know, Linda talks a lot about these sort of dog-man type creatures that, you know, they have like a canine type head, but they can walk on two legs and, and four limbs as well. Well, what's interesting about these Texas, not the Puerto Rican ones, but the Texas chupacabras, which are clearly canid, you know, they have coyote DNA in them, we know that, but they look weird and they seem to be genetically altering. But there are some cases of people seeing these creatures where they've said they momentarily reared up onto their hind legs, as if they're learning and developing how to walk in a bipedal fashion as well as a... you know in a four-legged fashion now granted a lot of the reports linda has are of sort of quite muscular six to seven feet tall or five to six to seven feet tall creatures that have wolf or dog-like appearances and that can walk on two limbs and four now the, the coyotes of texas you know they're clearly much smaller um but they seem to have the same ability and you know if they are being mutated by something like these so called mutagens and they're developing the ability to go from four legs to two that would be an incredible development and and to see one of these things you know late at night perhaps in some dark texas field you saw one of these hairless coyotes with its mutated front limbs balancing precariously on its back limbs you might actually think you'd seen sort of like a scaled down werewolf or a dog man that's literally how it would look so in other words there are certain significant parallels in that respect.
0: Well that's what I was going to ask you too so you must be clairvoyant as well with all your other gifts my friend. Are they nocturnal? Do they hunt only at night?
1: Uh, Well again that's another really good question because almost exclusively the attacks on Puerto Rico are at night um, and that's why they've been so successful because you know um puerto rico as i said unfortunately a lot of the, the ranchers the farmers there but unfortunately they're quite poor so their, you know their farm so to speak is very often their backyard where the animals are kept and of course in the little villages and towns there isn't much street light you know it's imagine when there's like a you know there's a power outage everywhere It's black. That's what a lot of these little towns are like. And so, in other words, it makes it the perfect environment for a predator like the Chupacabra to attack because there's just no way to see it, you know, unless you've got a flashlight um, or your farm is covered with expensive flash, you know, uh, lights outside. You know, you're not going to see it. I think that's why the attacks are so successful in Puerto Rico. Now, what's interesting about the reports from Texas is that Situations the exact opposite and normally coyotes will largely only hunt at night you know they're quite fearful of people and stay away from them and they recognize that when the sun's set and you know darkness has come down that that's the time to hunt now one of the specific reasons why so many of these texas versions have been being shot and killed or hit by vehicles is because they hunt in the exact opposite way they're very often hunting during the day That's why branches have shot them. So, in other words, not only are they changing in terms of the hair loss, the limb length, um, the overbites, the pouches on the hindquarters, and the possible aspect of them being able to sort of rear up on the hind legs, we're now seeing them um, actually, like, psychological changes with with hunting during the day. And there are a couple of really weird and... uh, and creepy stories where ranchers here in Texas, one one famous one I can think of, which sort of typifies what I'm gonna say, um, where a rancher had one of these animals on his property and it was like, it had been trying to attack his anim- his, his farm animals, but he'd managed to, uh, to protect them. But it was kind of a case of, well, enough's enough. And he went out one day in his truck and actually saw one of these animals, got out of the truck with his gun, and walked towards it from, to a distance of about, probably about I think, 70, 80 feet, something like that. And from a, a line of trees on the one side of the uh, field, he saw another one of these creatures watching him. You know, he, he kind of had that feeling we all have, like when you're at the checkout line of the store, you think someone's watching you turn around and they are. He got that feeling. And he, this one was to the left of him, and there was one in front of him. Then he felt compelled up to the right and there was one over there and they slowly started to move forward and he got the feeling that they were kind of like trying to triangulate him and you know launch an attack like a three-pronged attack and he got quite worried by this that he seemed there was like like an intelligent um i guess agenda to it you know to bring him down and he literally just he didn't even try shooting any of them he just backed away and jumped in his truck and went straight back to his ranch house so that was really weird that you would have these mutated coyotes actually triangulating a person you know that's sort of very ominous
0: oh very much so that's hunting and uh, you know i mean triangulate that's that's something yeah. that normally animals just won't do so no you're right yeah this is terrifying to think and i think he made the right choice
1: get the hell out of here. yeah
0: exactly <laughs> were there any oral traditions i'm thinking of first nations native indians uh american indians was there any oral traditions or perhaps even cave drawings that you came a- across i guess i'm trying to establish how far back we mm. can make an estimate
1: well yeah that that isn't important Important factor, you know, how far back the phenomena goes. I mean, as I said, that um, in Puerto Rico, the, the term Chupacabra, we know, was not created until the summer of 1995. Now, before that, in an area of, in the 70s, in an area of Puerto Rico called Mocha, the reports of what became known as the Mocha Vampire, M O C A. I mean, if you look up on the internet Mocha Vampire, you'll find the stories of how there was this brief spate of attacks on farm animals in the mid-70s, and it sand, the creature sat and the attack center, just like the chupacabra. Um, I've also got a report from the 60s from the from Puerto R- near Puerto Rico's Arecibo telescope, uh, this huge telescope on Puerto Rico that's part of the search for you know, alien life. And um, there was a report of a strange creature seen there in the 60s, which was accompanied by an animal found drained of blood. Um, in Texas, I've heard rumours and stories that the term chupacabra was supposedly used like a hundred years or more ago in relation to some attacks, but I haven't been able to admittedly verify those stories. But, you know, as I said, at Puerto Rico, it goes back a long way. But what is interesting, though, know, with the coyote stories from the United States and these mutated coyote stories, you know, the the Native American people they had a lot of legends about the coyotes you know being magical creatures um, you, you know that they had sort of secret attributes that and skills that nobody actually knew you know unless you were sort of one with nature and you you understood them so in other words, I do find it interesting that we 're having all these weird things with coyotes today, and the Native American people did sort of believe that there was something sort of unusual about this sort of particular breed so uh, whether you know one scenario is born out of another I don't know but um, you know it is an important question because I think think what we're seeing is we're definitely seeing the development of two separate but similarly named phenomena or identically named phenomena but we're still pushing the barriers back as to when it all began but in terms of Texas you know the the reports really did begin to a large degree, sort of around about 2003, 2004. That's why it's unlikely to be just normal mange, because if it was mange, why didn't we see them in such numbers in 1999 or at 1989? Why is it suddenly out of the blue that these animals are changing? And that's, that's an important question.
0: Yeah, you know, you have to start looking at genetics, I feel, and then you have to start Mm -hmm. looking at what else is going on that they're becoming more and more visible and encroaching in a population, um, not Mm -hmm. urban centers so much, but population population. Uh, centers where they can be seen and they're taking more and more risks just like we Mm -hmm. see sometimes when when bears don't have enough food in their own areas Mm -hmm. they'll start coming into small towns and things like that for garbage
1: well i mean where i live i live sort of like 20 miles from outside i mean i live in arlington texas which is a big city it's about 20 miles outside of dallas texas Uh, and we get coyotes here uh you know you'll occasionally hear them. Uh, and just outside of where I live, there's another little town called Mansfield. I mean, you you drive up the main road to Mansfield, sort of once every couple of weeks, you'll see at least a couple of dead coyotes on the road. You know, we're talking just, you know, a short distance from downtown Dallas. Um, so in other words, regardless of the hairless, weirder-looking ones, um, you know, nature has a, an easy, skillful way of intruding upon what we can to our civilization, you know, when we're tucked up in our beds at night, we don't realize how much sort of wildlife does come out.
0: Well, thanks for that, buddy. Now I'm going to have to leave the night later. <laughs>
1: there you go. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, even just like regular, so like bobcats, you know, wildcats, um, that sort of thing. I mean, uh, yeah, just a couple of couple of months ago, I actually saw um, a bobcat race across the road. We quite quite a few of those. That was the first one I'd seen, you know, that wasn't on television. (laughs) So it it demonstrates that, you know, people will say, well, these things couldn't be running around, we'd be seeing them. But most people don't see bobcats, most people don't often see a coyote, but they're out there, you know, in massive numbers. They're just very skillful at hiding from us.
0: Just behind the studio, folks, uh, is a small and getting smaller little forest Uh, right beside a Costco here in Kingston. And every now and then we'll hear the coyotes at the back, and they sound like they could just jump the fence in a heartbeat and cross the street, and they'd be in our backyard. Um, And then we'll smell something like a skunk, and then you'll just hear Mm -hmm. all the howling. So they've obviously encapsulated a skunk and killed it for a food source. But I've just heard that that little tiny forest, and it's not a big forest uh, by any sense, um, that's going to be disappearing as well, so the coyotes will be gone. It's a shame because, uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to them. They'll just die off and they'll be
1: Well, you know, I mean, the the one good thing, thing in those sort of situations is that nature actually is very good at sort of clinging on. You know, that's why you often hear these stories about some scientist confidently says, well, this animal's extinct or that one's extinct, and then we find years later one surfaces you know that that is a, one of the good, good points is that nature often does sort of manage to thrive and find a new way to live even if the original surroundings are gone
0: folks nick redfern's our guest tonight the book is called chupacabra road trip and he's got deep into the forest he's got lots of great stories if you've enjoyed this show he goes into far more detail in his book the book is called chupacabra road trip in Search of the Elusive Beast, and our guest and author tonight, Nick Redford, none better, folks. Show.com. Just click on tonight's guest book covers, order all of them, especially this one. I mean, this one is fantastic for this time of year. Uh, I wanted just to mention also to you, Nick, um, I had the wonderful opportunity uh, when I was living in a place called Sudbury, which is a mining city, to interview Jane Goodall. And Of all people. And Jane Goodall firmly stated that she believes in the creature called Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is completely sound. She said she's gone deep into the bush, as you have, all over the world. And in every case, aboriginals have come up to her and described a creature that is very similar in appearance to a Bigfoot. And she mm-hmm. said she doesn't know what it is, but it's not an ape and she's questioning whether it might be something left over from mm. the dinosaur era. So perhaps, you know, I mean, we're still finding things that we don't know about. There are new species that were un- undercover. I mean, when we go deep in the water now, we're going deeper and deeper than ever. We find new species of fish we never knew existed. So why not? And why not?
1: put some? No, you're right, you're right. I mean, um, a lot of people think today with sort of, you know, social media everywhere and instant news and things like this, that we know everything that's going on. But even in, you know, civilized countries like the United States, um, Canada, you know, there are massive forests, gigantic forests that most people never even go in. And even if they do, they might just sort of go in a quarter of a mile to where there's like a picnic area, you know, on a Saturday afternoon or whatever with the kids. Most people never sort of wander 20 miles into the woods or the forest to see what's there. Um, So, you know, anything that's sort of skillful enough could hide, you know, very successfully. It's the same with sort of sea serpents and lake monsters. If these creatures are sort of some sort of unknown fish, you know, where predominantly they're constantly underwater and barely ever need to surface, again, the chances are that they might not be found. Um, you look at place like South America, you know, even for all the, you know, deforestation that's gone on, there's still, you know, gigantic rainforests and jungles um, where anything could be hiding. And, um, I mean, a, a perfect example, I mean, it, it does get brought up a lot, but back in the 1930s, and it is a perfect example, um, a, a large fish called a coelacanth was caught. The coelacanth, up until the 1930s, 35 was assumed to have become extinct literally tens of millions of years ago and here they are swimming off the coast of south africa in the 30s and they still get periodically you know seen and photographed today um so again you know if once if something the size of a xylacanth can hide what else can hide you know and i think that's an important issue
0: and i think uh, as we've discussed too in, in all the cases with dogman with uh, the chupacabra and also with bigfoot they all seem to have an intuition that or a brain if you will that is non-animalistic and is more human in nature and you know because yeah that's th- actually
1: a good point yeah
0: They might be able to, uh, you know, be stealthy because of that, because maybe they've seen TV and seen what we do to to each other. I'm being a little bit facetious, Mm. but let's face it, we're still shooting each other's butts off. Um, What is the danger of...
1: of You're you're right, yeah. I mean, a lot of animals, in many respects, are sort of far more advanced than we are. You know, in in sort of ways you never think of, I mean, it doesn't matter how many people there are on the planet, there's no one on the planet who could spin a spider's web. You know, we just can't, We cannot do it. Um, it's like bats. Bats can fly in pretty much total darkness. You know, some people say they have radar. It's actually not radar, but they actually do have senses that allow them to sort of bounce back. You know, the, the vibration bounces back so that they can see where they're flying or well, not actually seeing, but they're sensing where they can fly and where walls are and things like that. Um, you know, so a lot of animals have skills, talents that, that we do not have. You know, we're more sort of, you know, we have dexterity, we can build things but in other ways we're very different and, you know, we are the, the inferior one. But you're quite right, particularly with these dogman reports you know, they seem quite cunning uh, in their activities and watching people and spying on them and keeping away from them. That's the same with Bigfoot. Bigfoot seems to have this innate ability to know when people are around or whether dangers are around and as for the chupacabra, they seem to be, particularly on Puerto Rico, they're very stealthy predators, very skillful predators that, you know, um, no matter sort of what precautions are taken, unless the farm animals alert the farmer, the first he knows of the attacks is when he wakes up the next morning. They, they seem to, you know, just have this ability to be so stealthy, you know
0: fantastic stuff as always nick thank you so much for coming on the show i want to give a shout out real quick to kelly loke uh, who puts our website together thank you so much kelly also a shout out to cat cat thanks a lot from Llewellyn, um she gives me all these great guests from Llewellyn, and nick is is one oh Oh yeah,
1: yeah kat's great she's really um, good on the whole pr front. Yeah.
0: she's amazing absolutely she helped me out so much um putting nick on the show and getting nick uh, on the show i really appreciate that nick we've only got a couple of seconds left but have you given your proximity to dallas have you ever looked at the kennedy assassination
1: um have a little bit, not too much, because one of the main reasons being that, um, you know, so many people have been involved in that field for decades and, and a lot of really good research has been done and it's continuing to be done. So uh, what I prefer to do is sort of focus on the areas I know a lot about, like cryptozoology, ufology, rather than sort of go stumbling and bumbling into something, you know, that's been on for years. And I'm um, sort of, I won't say new to it. You know, I know the main theories and the stories and everything else, but I kind of feel that, you know, I like to sort of have my parameters and things I like to look into and other issues I like to read about, but, you know, I don't sort of get involved in investigations as such, but uh, every time I have sort of friends and family come over, they all want to go down to Daily Plage and the grassy Knoll. so, you know, I'm sort of, I, I'm kept quite in touch with it, and Lee Harvey Oswald's grave is actually only about seven miles from where I live.
0: You see, uh, I'm from the British Commonwealth as well, and I used to get chastised for saying Data Plaza. And I still spell color C O L O U R, the correct Folks, Nick Redford's been our guest. plaza first person witness accounts order yours right now night